Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Voices of Experience on Kixie AM 880, KKNW 1150 AM. And uh, if you're listening to it at another time, you can listen to it on a podcast. And uh, if you want to listen to other shows that you've heard on this uh, program, Voices of Experience, you can just go to VoicesOfExperience.com. And then when the um, cover page comes up, you can click on the radio and you can walk through and find out how you can listen to those shows. So again, welcome today, and it looks like the weather is turning from that cold fog into <laughs> some rain. So actually, I'm welcoming that. Eric Crema coming to us live and direct from Via the Zoom. peninsula. Yeah, how are you? <laughs> good, good. I'll let you know if it starts raining here first. Kinda right. It blows that way. That's right. We'll get the forecast there. I'm doing great. You know, I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's always nice to see family and eat a bunch of food. It's a good combo. Uh, how about you? About the same. Yeah, it was great. We had a really good uh, time. We actually had the Thanksgiving dinner. We had some friends up from the Bay Area, but we had it Wednesday night instead because mm. we went to the Seahawk game against the San yeah. Francisco 49ers on uh, Thanksgiving Day. Kind of wish uh, we had missed that, but our guests were very happy. They came up from the Bay Area, and, um, you know, they're, of course, obnoxious because they yeah. won. I'm not. I never am as a fan. Just uh. them. No, it was fun. We had a really good time, and I hadn't been to actually a Seahawk game in a very, about 10 years or so live. I watch them all the time, but it was fun going back and getting the stadium atmosphere. It was pretty fun that way. Well, of course, that wasn't the big game, though, right? What was the big game? I don't want to go there. <laughs> You know what? It was a good game, though. I know, but I yeah. we're talking Still about stinging. the Cougars, Huskies. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I wanted to win. That's all there is yeah. to it. I mean, there's a lot of close games, and you go, wow, it's competitive. And it was entertaining, of course. Yes. But I really, based on everything that's going on with the Pac-12 and 10 and the 5 and the 2 or whatever, nah, I wanted to win. Now, this is how informative your show is, Paul. I had learned from you listening to your show, last week's show, that this is not the end for Apple Cup. That's right. Last week, I was having people on talking about their favorite Apple Cup. And the reason I did that is that this was the favorite Apple Cup. Well, just before I aired that, yes, they announced the Apple Cup will continue. I believe next year it's going to be at Lumen Field, the following year in Pullman, then Husky Stadium, and back to Pullman. So they have a five-year extension on the Apple Cup. So we We'll find out how things roll. There's a long ways to go between now and next year as to how things are going to settle out on this whole thing. Absolutely. Yep. So, Well, you uh, have a packed show today. Yes, definitely. Uh, we have Lawrence Pintak, who will be first up today, and he is a expert in the Middle East, and there's a lot of experts, but he is one of them. I know him quite well, and I had a discussion with him about what's going on there in his view and I'll give a more uh, longer introduction, just a few moments to him coming up. But uh, please stay tuned to that. He has some interesting observations on what's going on there. 
I have a feature later, uh, Tom Casey. He's my cousin, actually. He uh, is the head and founder of an organization called Discussion Partners Consulting Group. I read a lot of his emails coming across. I'll snag one every now and then say, hey, that sounds really interesting. And this one I thought was because he had all his colleagues read a series of kids' books to bring them back to when we lose our leadership qualities. I'll explain more later, but it's Mm. kind of from the mouth of babes that uh, he tried to untangle so many complications. Meandering Musings with Neil Peterson, Outdoor Showers. This guy takes outdoor showers more than you'll ever believe. (laughs) And, uh, but that's Neil. And uh, let's see, a historical event occurred on this day in 1947, and that has a lot to do with what we're talking about with Lawrence Pentak coming up in just a few moments. It happened on this very day in, again, 1947. And a timeless classic for today, a producer mortgaged his home to raise the necessary funds to produce this album that the song we're going to play today was included on, and it became the first hit for this band, and they are from Canada. That's all the hints mm. you're going to get. And let's see what else. I think we're in good shape. Why don't we just uh, go to the interview with Lawrence Pintac coming up in just a moment. All right, so we... Uh, don't have Lawrence Pintak in the studio, but again, this is an interview I did with him last week, but it's not dated. I think it's pretty much uh, contemporary with the events that continue. Uh, now, he's an award-winning journalist, scholar. Yes, Lawrence, you are a scholar and media development expert. He has spent most of his professional life focusing on the challenges and aspirations of the people living in the Middle East, and uh, he was a former CBS News correspondent Much of his time with CBS was spent covering the Middle East. He was the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University, and that's where I met him. He served as dean of the Graduate School of Media and Communications at Aga Khan University in East Africa. He helped develop the Pakistan Center for Excellence in Journalism. So, I said, Lawrence, I want to talk to you about what's going on in the Middle East. The fact is that when this occurred, October 7th, they go over the border, cut through the fences, and literally slaughter 1,400 Israelis. Didn't they know exactly what they were doing in terms of Hamas, that the retribution would come right back at the Palestinians? To me, my theory, I'm just going to throw this out, they're as responsible for the deaths of Palestinians as the Israels, Israelites, and because they knew exactly what their playbook was going to be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was the plan. The plan was always to provoke a major response. It was ultimately to put them back on the radar screen and to undermine peace agreements that are in the works between other Arab countries and Israel that would have cut out the Palestinians. Hamas, and they were doing what they were doing. You look back at the West Bank and you look at the buildings going, bye-bye, we're going to see these for the last time, but we're going to go do this anyhow. If if you look back at history, the Munich Olympics siege uh, back in 72, when a Palestinian militant group took over the dorm where the Israelis were staying and held them hostage, and ultimately a bunch of people died in, in the rescue attempt by the Germans. 
And that was aimed at putting the Palestinians on the map. I knew somebody who was involved in, in planning that. And he said, we didn't want to do that, but we were being ignored. And by doing that, we got the attention of the world. Obviously, it was 24-7 coverage because it was at the Olympics. So it became the global story of the time. And a year later, Yasser Arafat is addressing the UN General Assembly. It worked. Terrorism in that case worked. And this was the, the agenda here was exactly the same, to put the Palestinians and the Palestinian story back on the front page and make the Israelis look bad through what they're doing right now. Then why didn't they figure this out, I guess, some, and change the trajectory some because Who? of Israel and not doing exactly this way? I'm just trying to get in their head. Yeah. And I know the, I don't know what I would say if they attacked West Seattle and they did and killed a whole bunch of people. It's like the same old story is going to evolve. It absolutely is. I mean, that's the ultimate tragedy of this. If the Israelis wanted to achieve some kind of peace with the Palestinians, killing thousands of people, bombing Gaza to dust, is not the way to achieve peace. They are creating yet another generation of terrorists. Because if you look at all of the research around terrorism, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent by governments, particularly since 9-11, on what causes terrorism, what radicalizes someone. Well, there are key triggers that they've determined. And first and foremost, it's direct exposure to violence, that you have been targeted or people you love have been targeted by violence. That is what radicalizes someone. Well, my God, look at hundreds of thousands of Gazan children uh, who have now lost their families or loved ones or, or, or. And what is going to happen to that generation? You said this many years ago about oh, yeah. this whole thing. I mean, you know, violence begets violence. And that's kind of what the core is here. And you're not going to forget this going forward whatsoever. I mean, if you look back at 1982 when the Israelis invaded Lebanon, it was to neutralize the PLO. But at the same time, they radicalized the Shia, and that was the source, the seed for the creation of Hamas, which is a major global terrorism organization now. It neutralized the Palestinians at some level. The Palestinians were driven into exile, so couldn't shoot across the border anymore, but uh, Hezbollah took their place. What should we know about the Palestinian point of view that you don't think we get? It's that violence and uh, intimidation and degradation are a daily part of life for Palestinians on the West Bank and in Gaza. Um, the, the level of violence, the level of daily deaths is ignored largely by the world. This doesn't make it into the, onto the front page every day. Uh, you know, lots of reasons for that. We have compassion fatigue. We're distracted by this story or that story. But the bottom line is that, that thousands and thousands of Palestinians have died in, you know, over the last few decades. And most people don't know that. And most people don't know that the Palestinians on the West Bank basically can't move around the West Bank. It has been uh, turned into the equivalent of Swiss cheese with walls and checkpoints and settler kibbutz, and that has left the Palestinians in despair. 1993, the Oslo Accords were supposed to have been the deal to create a Palestinian state. That never happened. Twenty years later, less of the West Bank is controlled even minimally by the Palestinians than ever before. 
Do you think, uh, what was it, around 2000, when Arafat had the responsibility or the opportunity, actually, that's a better way of putting it, with the Clinton Accords or whatever was happening then, that he kind of blew it for not going there because they were going to get a state? Oh, no, he, he went there. No, I would disagree totally. Okay. Arafat, Arafat ultimately shook hands with the Prime Minister of Israel, with Clinton. And they did a deal. And that was that then led to, that was the Camp David Accords. That was the first step toward what became the Oslo Accord, which was an agreement to create an independent Palestinian state. Arafat, he declared peace. Uh, he said, our fight, our, our physical fight against Israel is over, and we are ready to make peace, and we look forward to having a working relationship. Now, for incredibly complicated reasons, and anyone you talk to will give you a different story, but the bottom line is that that Palestinian state never happened. Okay, and my understanding was that uh, Arafat, the last moment, pulled out. Arafat never never rejected peace, never rejected a deal with Israel, never turned back um, and said Israel must be eliminated. That was the fundamental division between Hamas and Arafat's organization, Fatah. Uh, Fatah said, we're ready to make peace, and Fatah today run, it runs the Palestinian Authority, which is the administrative infrastructure on the West Bank. They work on a daily basis with the Israelis. Hamas said, we will never accept an Israeli state. Israel must be wiped out. And that's, and, and they, the two organizations came to blows. In uh, 2006, there were Palestinian elections. Hamas won the majority. Hamas was based in Gaza and ultimately took control of Gaza and ended up in a civil war with Fatah, the other other Palestinian group, and drove them out of Gaza. Uh, so that, at the end of the day, is the fundamental division within the Palestinian organizations. How about Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the other actors here at Qatar? How do you think they're handling this now? Like, you go back to October 7th or something, uh-oh. What are the other countries going to do now? What, what are you thinking at this point? Well, there's a lot of a lot of different answers there, depending on who we're talking about. First of all, there's Iran. So Iran is a major supporter financially and otherwise for Hamas and for Hezbollah. So Hamas is a key player right now on whether or not this war will spread. And the fact that it is not so far would seem to indicate Hamas. Uh, Iran is not ready to get into an all-out war. They will just continue to use their proxies. Hamas has a relationship with Qatar, which is also a major funder. M many of the Hamas political leadership are based in Qatar, which is why Qatar has played a mediating role in getting some hostages released, in getting some humanitarian aid in, etc. So the Americans are working with, with Qatar, and Qatar is then talking to Hamas. The Saudis were early funders of Hamas um, back. So Hamas, quick history lesson, Hamas uh, was essentially formed in the late 80s, grew in the 90s. Its leader, Sheikh Yassin, was jailed, but then allowed out by the Israelis in 93 on medical grounds to leave the country and was allowed to go around the Arab world raising money. So the Israelis also have a role in the creation of Hamas and in its continued flourishing, shall we say, because 
it's that that old the enemy of my enemy is maybe not my friend, but if we can divide and rule, we'll rule. And so they allowed Sheikh Yassin to grow Hamas. They allowed him to get funding from abroad, and a lot of that funding came from the Saudis. And then over the years, they have continued to allow uh, various things to happen that meant that Hamas would continue to grow and have strength. And, you know, in recent weeks since the slaughter on October 7th, a variety of Israeli officials, you know, former heads of Shin Bet and, and Mossad, etc., etc., have all bewailed the fact that they helped Hamas to gain strength, that it would ultimately undermine them. At the time when Sheikh Yassin was allowed out and allowed to leave the country and raise money, Menachem Begin said, we have planted a ticking time bomb on Yasser Arafat's doorstep, meaning we're dividing the Palestinians, he's going to be a problem, they're going to be a problem for Arafat. In the end, of course, it became a ticking time bomb for Israel. How do you think the Biden administration has been handling this? Completely one-sided. Put aside how much the U.S. should be supporting Israel, uh, you know, where that line is. Obviously, the U.S. has a fundamental relationship with Israel. No one's suggesting Israel should go away, be destroyed. But the issue of a more balanced approach to this problem, that we have not had that, that we had Biden standing up saying, our ironclad support for Israel will not change, that there has been no word from the administration about even-handedness, about protecting civilians, about looking for a ceasefire, etc. That has huge implications for our relationship across the Muslim world. Now, there's a difference between the people and the governments, because the governments in the Arab world are extremely cynical, and this this plays into the hands of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, because Israel looks horrible in all of this. Hamas is being destroyed, and the destruction of Hamas is in the interest of the Saudis and the Gulf Arabs, because they're trying to do their own peace deal with Israel. My bet would be you're going to see the crown prince of Saudi Arabia at some point in the coming weeks or months come out with a whole new peace plan. He's going they to, will be central to this. They'll play a, play a big role going exactly. forward. Exactly. He will put himself forward as the savior of the Palestinian people, and it also plays into his ultimate agenda of normalization with Israel. And uh, so that's a good thing. Yeah, right? maybe. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, if it happens, if it it's happens. a good thing. But the, the challenge is, you know, you can argue two ways about what happens next. You can very easily argue that everyone is so radicalized right now on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side that there's just no room for a peace deal at any point in, in decades to come. The so other, we're going to be this forever, yeah, for a I mean, long the, period of the time. The counter-argument is that, you know, maybe everybody will have, finally have enough. But um, unfortunately, having covered... Yeah, 40 years for 40, of covering yeah. this and being in the guess, guess center where, of right? all this, yeah, <laughs> you're having uh, kind yeah. of doubts about that. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about this, because you have been, uh, you know, in the weeds, so to speak, in this whole thing for a long, long time. What if Trump were president? Well, the first thing is that because this administration has taken such a one-sided approach to it, it's almost hard to see a more one-sided approach. 
I think he would be more, his rhetoric, of course, against Hamas and etc. would be more harsh. I think there would be more danger of Iran being brought into it, into him provoking a confrontation with Iran. Poking the, not the bear, but exactly. poking whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The mullah. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, but didn't he say at the beginning or something? He said something like about Hamas, great fighters and very brave people. Well, he, he said uh, he said Hezbollah was very smart. The problem with everything is it's taken out of context. And usually, when you know, from my perspective, usually when something Trump says something incendiary, it is purposely incendiary. I mean, you can argue that uh, Hezbollah has been smart in not overtly entering this conflict. Um, in in keeping their their powder dry, as it were. Are you surprised some on the college campuses, the reaction to this? One of the very surprising things is the level of college campuses and beyond. The fact that you have hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating in the streets of various major world capitals calling for a ceasefire. And that's both Arabs and Muslims and American Jews and, and supporters of Israel. It's been clearly horribly traumatic for America, the American Jewish community and the Jewish community in Europe. But at the same time, it is very interesting to see the number of supporters of Israel who are out there demanding some kind of a peace deal, some kind of a ceasefire, who are horrified by this level of you know, there, we, we talked about the slaughter of the numbers now 1,200, the Israelis say, on, on October 7th. Well, obviously, there is a far greater slaughter going on in Gaza right now. And, um, we, you know, we're up over 10,000 people. You know, latest stories out today are that a third of those are in the south of Gaza, where the Israelis told people to go. And much of that happened after they told them to go there. So the level of inhumanity has caused such a response around the world that it really is undermining Israel's position. Even before this, you saw polls in the U.S. of a greater percentage of support or empathy, whatever term you want to use, for the Palestinians, including among American Jewish organizations and and American Jews. It'll be very interesting to see where those numbers end up later, and at what point Israel decides that the cost, the the political cost, is too great. But I suspect that's just not going to happen. And uh, Netanyahu is the wrong person at the wrong time to be in charge right now. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that there's been so much pushback against Israel in the, the past year among American Jews first and foremost, is because Netanyahu is such an extremist and, of course, you know, much like Trump, was seeking to undermine Israeli democracy. And that had people, you know, thousands of people out in the streets. Um, So, and then after this happened, there's a huge amount of blame that he didn't do enough to safeguard to prevent this from happening or to respond that day. There were Hamas militants in kibbutzes and villages uh, for a for hours before military Israeli military enforcements arrived reinforcements arrived um, and people are blaming blaming for that so I don't think Netanyahu will survive this crisis once the crisis is over I think he's toast
I saw in one of your Instagram postings that you are recommended TV series about giving a really good kind of objective look at this. I guess it's Israeli TV, but nonetheless, it, journalists tried to treat this fairly. Right. It's it, the, the the show is called Fauda, F-A-U-D-A. It, yeah, it's that. it's very interesting. It's produced by well, the star and the main writer and director are both ex special forces, Israeli special forces, undercover units that operated on the West Bank and in Gaza. Uh, But it is extremely well done, extremely even-handed, and you really get a very good look at the radicalization process on both sides and how, you know, these conflicts just feed themselves and create radicalization. Uh, it's it's a very good show. Again, back to your experience in this whole thing. You, you just must be so discouraged. I think you have nailed it. It's just you grow up generations of people. You kill them. You do this. What what do you expect? It, yeah. It's human nature. It doesn't matter if it's the Middle East or wherever. That's this is going to happen, and you're not going to forget it. Well, and why and, would you? And why should you? Absolutely. And get frustrated by the fact that you know as soon as this happened, people were asking why. You know, why do they hate them so much? As they were asking, why do they hate us after 9-11? And it's because we don't pay attention. If, A, the media were doing its job and covering what was going on on the West Bank on a regular basis, and if people were paying attention to that, you wouldn't be asking, why do they hate the Israelis? How can someone do such a grotesque, inhuman, unspeakable set of acts Yes, you can ask that, but why would they attack the Israelis? Anyone who knows, is paying any attention, will know the answer to that. Lawrence Pintak, the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. He's written several books on the Middle East and other books as well, but a couple of them are America and Islam, Seeds of Hate, The New Arab Journalist, and several more, as I mentioned. Now, if you want to find out more about Lawrence Pintech, his books, or anything else, you can Google Lawrence Pintech, and that's spelled P-I-N-T-A-K, Lawrence Pintech, P-I-N-T-A-K. So um, thank you for that, Lawrence. That was uh, very good information and very good intel for us to take forward in this awful situation again in the Middle East, and we hope mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know, the peace that's established right now, and I don't have an update if it's continuing, but I think, was it Thursday's another day that to extend the, the peace between the uh, warring factions. Let's just hope that happens. Let's move into something lighter, and that's Neil Peterson. He's back with his meandering musings. Let's just get right to it. He's talking about showering outdoors. Let's go, Neil. (laughs) Showering outdoors. This may come as a surprise, but I take almost every shower outdoors. In fact, during the last 70 days, when I've been at home, I have showered outdoors every single day except one. That one day, the outside shower was out of hot water, so I showered indoors. Needless to say, I had to look up what the Guinness Book of World Records was for the number of consecutive days showering outside. I found several shower-related records. For example, most showers in a day, shortest shower, 
most people showering simultaneously. Longest time going without a shower. But there is currently no Guinness World Record for most consecutive days taking an outside shower. However, there is a process for establishing such a category. It can take up to 12 weeks to gain approval from the Guinness officials. There is one problem I can foresee with gaining approval. That is the fact in order to establish a world record, it has to be verifiable. This would mean that I would have to have someone accompany me every time I take a shower outdoors so that they could take a picture with a date stamp to prove that I took the shower on consecutive days. This is troubling to me for two reasons. One, the practicalities of finding someone who's available and willing to take a picture of me showering every day outdoors. And second, and the more important reason, is that one of the benefits of taking a shower outdoors for me is it's usually a solitary experience, a chance to connect with nature, its smells, its breezes, the weather, the sky, no matter whether it's day or night. I have learned that there are outdoor showers and there are outdoor showers. I, for one, am totally into being fully visible while showering. Some, however, have outdoor showers with privacy screens or some type of enclosure. I believe these privacy screens detract from the sensation of showering outdoors. I am also a fan of wall-mounted showers. Some others prefer freestanding showers. Some others use portable showers. Outdoor showers involve water supply and drainage issues. Decisions have to be made about material to be used. Stainless steel, brass, copper, etc. Water pressure has to meet federal, state, local requirements. Temperature control is important, too. What type of shower head, as well as what height it should be, are issues that need to be decided upon. All of these issues have an impact on the cost of an outdoor shower. Believe it or not, having an outdoor shower raises your home's overall value, and significantly, according to Realtor.com. Such a shower can also serve many functions, including an ability to clean bicycles and other sport equipment, keeping mud and dirt outside the home, cleaning kids' shoes after soccer practice, rinsing beach sand off your body, washing your dog, showering before or after a swim. Another reason for an outdoor shower is it can serve as a safety valve, just in case the inside shower is not functioning as well as it should. It is one thing to have an outdoor shower. It's another thing to use it. For me, it's an invigorating experience, one that I look forward to every day, regardless of the weather or the time of day or night. It is so satisfying and so relaxing. Not sure whether that is from the strong flow of hot water streaming down my body or from the use of hand soap to scrub down my skin or from rubbing the shampoo into and out of my hair or from shaving my face while the hot water of the shower continues to pour on me. For me, taking a shower outdoors makes me feel a little bit like a young child, a young boy with his eyes wide open, marveling at everything in the world, including the weather, the sun, the moon, the breeze, the smell of the trees nearby, the surroundings. By showering outdoors, I feel more a part of this wonderful world that we live in. It's become a ritual for me. Well, there you go. That's inspiration from Neil Peterson to start showering outdoors. I think I'll pass for a little while, maybe in the summer. Or he's down in Palm Springs, too. Let's be uh, fair about yeah. that. 
But uh, you can uh, listen to all of his Meandering Musings by just going to meanderingmusings.net. That's his website. You can listen to this one and all of the other Meandering Musings he's done over the years. And I'm telling you, they're fabulous, and I love to air those. So anyhow, we'll be back uh, in just a moment with uh, Voices of History. Welcome to today's Voices of History. Tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. Well, it seems like this is the Middle East day because the first uh, Voices of History today is goes back to kind of where, I don't say this began, but it was a big date that led to where we are at right now. Despite strong Arab opposition, the United Nations on November 29th, today, 1947, voted to petition Palestine and create an independent Jewish state, Israel. Now this conflict partition. Did I say what did I say? Petition. Yeah, yeah. Partition. Thank you. I thought I got that wrong. Partition. I looked that up too. Divide. Yep. The conflict dates back to 1910 when both groups lay claim to the British-controlled territory. The Zionists came to the ancient homeland of the Jews to establish a Jewish national state. The native Palestinian Arabs sought to stem Jewish immigration and set up a secular. Palestinian state. On November 30th, 1609, Galileo first begins observing the moon with his telescope. Now, he wasn't the first to use a telescope, but he was the first to publish a detailed report on his findings. Included were detailed sketches of the surface of the moon, which showed mountains, valleys, and plains. Up to that time, People thought that they were heavenly bodies and perfect up in the sky. So um, the only thing that people knew then was that the earth was imperfect. Mm. And when did we find out that it was made of cheese? That came about uh, 1714. Ah. That was when George Washington was born. And there, oh, forget it. (laughs) I was trying to go down another path there, but I get strangled in that. Um. On December 1st, 1913, Henry Ford installs the first assembly line for mass production of an entire automobile. His innovation reduced the time it took to build a car for from more than 12 hours. And think of this is interesting, to 1 hour and 33 minutes. Wow. To think about that innovation then. I I do these sometimes and you just read and then you go, "Wait a minute. 12 hours is how long it took to get a car built?" And then within just days of implementing this new technology with the assembly line, one hour and 33 minutes. Now, was that the Model T? Yes, it was the Model T. And uh, that was first introduced in 1908. And again, five years later, they were building it, but it was really expensive. And Ford said, quote, when I'm through, I want just about everybody to have a Model T. And that's why I did it. So we not only invented a car, but an assembly line. I think he invented the assembly line, the first to do it, but 
I don't know that for sure. Well, he was the first to apply it to manufacturing, I believe, uh, okay. stuff like automobiles, yeah. Right. Makes sense. On December 2nd, 1970, the Environmental Protection Agency created in response to the realization that human activity can have major effects on the planet. That spurred the creation of the EPA and the uh, what really led to this, and I vaguely remember this, but really was spurred on all this was what happened in the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland in 1969. There was an industrial debris that were on floating on the surface of the water somehow through doing some work that involved uh, some flames and in uh, trying to get production out quickly from the factories. These flames just came in out of nowhere came out to the river, it spread across the river, and in some places it reached uh, the fire level of over five stories high. Wow. And if you look at some photos of the river prior to that, you look at it, it's, you know, a green, brown, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. dead river, and you could see this was going to happen. But Yeah, it, water's not supposed to burn, so if your river's <laughs> no. on fire, you know yeah. there's a problem. Yeah, Houston, we have a problem, at home. Yeah. and that really created the EPA, and my editorial comment would only be that, yes, uh, government regulation, people complain about that a lot. Well, there wasn't government regulation on this, and look what we got. And I think the planet is, you imagine what the planet would have been like had we not done that, cars, this sort of thing. So anyhow, I, I feel strongly about that. On November 28th, and this is now going more locally, uh, in 1853, Territorial Governor Isaac Stevens chose Olympia as the capital of the Washington Territory. Now, besides being the region's largest settlement at the time, Olympia, which I didn't know, uh, the community was also located on Puget Sound, allowing easy access by boat. Makes sense? Mm-hmm. So Olympia became the capital. And then on November 25, 1948, hundreds of people around Puget Sound watched the first television broadcast It was a high school football game between West Seattle and Wenatchee, and it was carried on KRSC-TV. Now, the images, of course, were black and white and grainy, but it was the first time, think about it, you could sit in your living room and watch TV and not go out to the stadium. Another program was shown a few days later, a Broadway play. Dorothy Bullitt saw that play, and it spurred her on to purchase KRSC for $300,000, and KRSC is what we now know today as King Television. There you go. So that's a courtesy of HistoryLink.org. And uh, the other one, of course, the more national and world events I cited today is courtesy of the History Channel, This Day in History. You have been listening to Voices of History. If you have historical events that you would like to share, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. So uh, back with Voices of Experience, uh, we're almost hitting the final quarter, not of the football game, but of this show. And Eric, I'm going to defer to you because you have a list of the most hot-selling items so far for Christmas. Yeah, so I was just curious myself. You know, I remember back in the days of kind of the mid-90s where toys like Tickle Me Elmo, if you remember that, you'd see this the video on 
uh, a nightly news of people climbing over each other to get to them, you know, and and then there was this sort of black market for them where people were playing uh, hundreds of dollars over what the price was. So I thought, well, I wonder what's going on these days because my daughter's pretty old now in terms of uh, toys and things like that. So she's passed curious. Tick- tickled me out almost day or almost. Well, she's passed oh, it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably worth something if I can find it, you know, find the one that we bought her. But uh, well, the number one, the number one gift this year, according to this article I was reading, uh, is probably made popular again because of a movie that was out this year, also very popular, the movie Barbie. So Barbie Dreamhouse, which was also also something my sisters uh, dreamed of getting under the Christmas tree, and that was back in the 70s. So again, what was old, what, how does that term go? What was old then is new again. Uh, Barbie Dreamhouse is the number one toy that everybody's out there looking for, and those cost about $140. So, um, you know, that's that was sort of the number one. And then interesting to me, because I thought with all the sort of gun violence and things that we've seen uh, across our airways, that this would not be popular, but the Nerf Pro Gel Fire Mythic Blaster is basically a, a, a toy gun that fires gel pellets. Um, so that's going to be uh, that's going to be fun for mom and dad to clean up around the house. But uh, these things shoot uh, uh, ten of these pellets every second, so you know the walls are going to be splattered. The other gifts kind of are are a little bit more for the more mature things like the Meta Quest. We've talked about the rise of Meta, Paul, <clears throat> and how um, you know, virtual reality is becoming something that's really popular and, and uh, the technology is getting better and better at just a breakneck pace. Uh, but MetaQuest 2, uh, starting about $250 is what people want. iPod uh, Air, uh, Apple AirPods, you know, super popular. And you notice the difference. I don't know if you've gone out, Paul, and had to buy anything other than Apple AirPods, but they're just, you know, just not quite the quality. Let's say that, but they're around 190 bucks. And then finally, rounding out the fifth item, AirTags, which, you know, I've heard of them, but I didn't. I don't have an Apple phone, so I was curious as to to learn a little bit more. And and interestingly, these are tags that can help you locate pretty much anything you can attach them to if it's lost. And and we were talking during a break. You have sort of a story about AirPads. Yes, uh, the Air Tags work very well. AirTags. I can tell you that, and I'm not uh, getting a promotion fee for this. Uh, they really do. And we went back to Philadelphia last year around Christmas. That was a real challenging time. I won't go into detail there as to the Air Tags saved us somewhat there. But the story is that when we got home, Marty, my wife wanted her luggage back so much. And I could, again, if I had more time to tell you, but the point is she called me and said, oh my gosh, the Brown, or excuse me, uh, one of the trucks that were driving around returning uh, her luggage, she wanted to make sure I got it. Well, she said it's on California Avenue. And uh, I followed the truck. I stopped the guy and I said, hey, I think you got my wife's uh, luggage in your back. And sure enough, it was. And he gave it to me, got home and she was one happy person and so was i so are these <clears throat> are these tags attached or is it just something you slip in a pocket is that you, you can put it work? in your suitcase you can put it in okay. there uh i don't think you want to be on the outside of it because people could pull it off sure but yeah sure. it works i'm telling you you'll know where your, your bags idea. are we knew when we were getting our luggage trying to get it back east it was where it was at in kentucky then it was over in cincinnati it was something else but it, it and i've talked to a lot of people and they are really worth it 
Well, not only gifts, but the the process of gift giving has really changed over the years. Uh, it used to be something where you remember layaway. You'd go actually, you could actually do that if you had a large family and, and you needed to buy gifts all year long. You could do that. My yep. mom would do that at Kmart, and then and then lay do the layaway. You don't hear about that anymore. Of course, so much is online these days, and you can shop around and find price. Even things as simple as price matching was not a thing back in the early '80s. You know, uh, so. I think it's a little easier now. I think people too are giving more experiences. Right. You know, let's go do this. Let's go out to dinner. Let's go on a trip. Let's, yes. you know, so Very that's kind of point. interesting. Yeah. Well, there good. Go. Thank you for that, Eric. That's that's good information. Um, why don't we slide into Tom Casey right now? He's the managing principal of discussion partner collaboration. And I said, uh, let's just get to the interview right now because I teed it up pretty well at the beginning, but it's like leaders of the world and how they can really learn from reading kids' books. Discussion Partners conducted a research study where you read 50 children's books with the objective of answering Mm -hmm. the hypothetical question. If you had been paying attention when these books were read to me, and now that I read them to my children and grandchildren, would I have been a better leader? Okay, what is the verdict, Tom? If I had to find one word that would reinforce our conclusions, the answer would be yes. One of them that jumped out at us was collaboration. Of the 50 books we we mentioned, teamwork uh, read as a collective, teamwork and collaboration within all of them. Okay, it was never it was not an oversight. We were looking for the common denominator. When you move beyond the there's no I in team and you know leave your egos at the door and all of this other stuff, you have to step back and say, does collaboration really work? Does it create a better outcome than it would if you're ignoring it? And we were looking during this period at the situation in Pennsylvania where half of Route 95 fell under the ground. And all of the quote-unquote experts were saying, oh my God, this is going to take months to fix, just disrupting major metropolitan area in the U.S., etc. And what happened is he had a young governor there who was flying over and saying, well, why don't we just fill in the hole and build a road on top of it? And he kept with that idea and he started socializing it with the quote-unquote experts. And the the thing was back up and running with everybody leaving their egos behind, everybody, you know, uh, wanting to cooperate, Pennsylvania being a state that's up for grabs in terms of a swing state, a lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats holding office, bicameral. And the thing was fixed in 12 days. The collaboration in pursuit of something that was meaningful worked. And you have to ask yourself the question, then why don't we do it more? Why do we feel that we have to be the smartest person in the room? Why do we feel that in order for us to win, somebody else has to lose? Where did that come from? Because it certainly wasn't in these books. So that's one example. The other example is kind of an ugly one, and I'm sorry if it offends somebody on a political basis, But when we were socializing some of the media we were doing for this research, it was right around the time that former President Trump was speaking in California, I believe. And he made a sarcastic comment about Nancy Pelosi and then went on to make a sarcastic comment about Nancy Pelosi's husband, who was the victim of an attack. Okay, man in his 80s was whacking in the head with a hammer and the audience laughed. And to a person in our debrief, for that weekend, we were offended. Because you would expect, if somebody had read these books and was paying attention and was even remotely empathetic as a human being, if somebody made a sarcastic comment on that, regardless of where the origin of the comment, people would have booed. You don't laugh at somebody else's pain. 
that's not in the book either. So we kind of got started on this exercise, Paul. There was an article in the BBC about the importance of adults reading children's books to their to their uh, kids and grandkids. And so we decided to extrapolate it in terms of saying, well, why don't we go back and read these books and, and pose that hypothetical? Would we have been better leaders? Would the people we're working with as leaders, would they be better leaders? Conclusions that we could draw helpful in terms of our consulting practice and our scholarship when we write about things. And the answer is yes. I'm not working with a group of people that are easily impressed. And there was a lot of cynicism. And Tom, why are we doing this? You know, you want me to read a kid's book over the summer? And there was a lot of degree of sarcasm. But one of the more ringing ahas came from one of our partners who was a former McKinsey, very senior McKinsey gentleman who in his early 70s, and he basically said, I was skeptical, but as soon as I dived into this, I realized that if I'd only been paying attention, I personally would have been a better leader. Tom, when you go back to the uh, Trump example in California after the attack on Mr. Pelosi, I think back to, let's say, a children in kindergarten or out in the play field. And let's say somebody who's not a very likable character falls and hits his head and is injured. They would immediately go to the rescue of that kid, run into the teacher and say, there's someone injured. One of the books we wrote was around 2016. And uh, the book, the focus of the book was um, um, we did a whole group of interviews with executives. Is there anything that, that when they look back on their childhood and they think about it, are they ashamed of? Okay, that to this day, despite how successful they are. Coincidentally, over the uh, weekend, I was reading the um, biography of Mitt Romney, who, growing up, was somewhat of a prankster. And he remembers an incident when he was, I think it was in grade school, where one of the pranks that he took, that he did, is he pulled a chair out from some classmate, and the person hit, hit the floor, and everybody started laughing. Now, he, to this day, does not remember that fondly. He's embarrassed by that recollection. I would hope that everybody who was in that room, when they laughed at the reference to somebody being hit in the head with a hammer, will think back on this and be embarrassed. There was an author of a book called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, Uncommon Thoughts and Uncommon Things by Robert Fulgham. And it kind of mm -hmm. goes along these same lines that... You know, a lot of the things that you learned then, like being kind, sharing, cleaning up after one another, and living a balanced life, work, play, and learning, and things like that, situations. But if we hung on to those, and that's what I think you have done here, it's kind of that balancing act. One more thing I did want to mention, too, and it goes to proverbial sayings and a lot of the things that we learned as children, like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. If you live by these, if you live by these, you'll probably come out okay. I mean, you know when to get up from the blackjack table. I've got my wallet here, and I still have money. I had a bad night, but I still have a hotel room I can go to and go home tomorrow on a flight. You live by that. Another one is like, uh, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. You live by those sorts of things when you learn younger, and there's points in your life you go, wow, the pain is so great. But on the other hand, it is better to have people around you and do that. You see what I'm driving at there in terms of yeah. what you, what you well, well, pointed out to me with your research 
is how much we learn when we're young. Back to your point of why you've done this whole thing. And if we stick to those principles, we'll probably be okay. I don't know why we stopped paying attention to them or why we thought expediency was preferable. But we are where we are. And the question is how we're going to work our way back where values and role models are important. The debates we had about these children's books was both on an intellectual, emotional, and a practical basis. And the third issue here is the, you know, is the tactical. All right, so we're still here. You know, we haven't, none of us have gone down for the dirt nap. Do we want to be role models of expediency? Do we want to be role models now that we're still here of doing the right things in the right way and trying to set good examples? The choice is ours. Again, that's Thomas Casey, Managing Partner of Discussion Partners Collaborative. If you would like to find anything out about what Tom talked about today or anything else, you can Google Thomas Casey-TPC, Thomas Casey-TPC. Eric, who do you have for next week? I have a representative coming in from the Salvation Army. We're going to talk about their need of people to go out and be a ringer. You've seen the ringers in front of stores and things like that with the big red kettle. I have. Check out, yeah, check out Register to Ring altogether. Register to Ring.com if you can spare a couple hours. They really need you. Great. Thank you very much, Eric. Quote of the week. We celebrate the birth of one who told us to give everything to the poor by giving each other motorized Hyrax. Bill McGibbon. All right, that's it for this week. This week's Timeless Classic is coming up next on Kixie. Only you'll hear the uh, the entire version, KKNW, some of it, one of my podcasts because of licensing issues, you won't hear it at all. Have a great rest of the week. We'll be back live next week. This week's Timeless Classic was the first American hit for this Canadian band. Record producer Jack Richardson mortgaged his house to allow the band to record the album this song appeared on. It turned out to be a good gamble. The reverse side of the single that would sell over a million copies was called Lightfoot, a tribute to fellow Canadian Gordon Lightfoot. Released in March of 1969, The Guess Who and These Eyes. Watched you bring my world to a 
Thank you. 